you know no two clients are the same no two problems are the same and also the world is changing and shifting all the time there's always new technologies available there's always new ways of doing things and i think it's always about having that flexible attitude every time how long ago have you moved to um, dubai so I moved in October 2020, basically during the pandemic, because the UK was in total shutdown and I was lucky that I could do everything pretty much from my laptop. So the UK wasn't the best place to be during that time. So I kind of just kind of stuck a pin in the globe a little bit and decided to come here uh, because it was kind of open. They had relatively few cases and it was kind of under control. So. Um, I came over here and it, to be honest, it's kind of a, a temporary thing. I'm back and forth now, spending more time in the UK now that it's open and things are kind of back to normal. But whilst everything was in complete lockdown in the UK, it was it was a great place to be over here. Uh, it was, you know, much more, much more functioning, which was nice. And that's beautiful. So I guess we'll jump straight into it. Yeah. Tell me about more about what you do. So I know that you're a lawyer. I know that you sort of do consulting. Um, but it's pretty cool. So, so you do something that you can work remotely. Yeah, so kind of a, a long career story, I guess. Um, so I've been a lawyer for the last nearly 10 years, but I didn't start off that way. I actually did a biology degree at undergraduate level um, because I always wanted to go on and be a vet, actually. Uh, but then once I graduated, um, I decided that I didn't really want to go down that path anymore. And I decided to go to my careers advisor at university, basically, and ask him what the people do with my degree. And he sort of mentioned research and teaching neither of which appealed and he said actually a lot of people with science degrees actually go on and be lawyers which is not something I'd ever thought about because I kind of had your typical idea of a lawyer as being a contract lawyer somebody who works in an office surrounded by paperwork and not really something that had appealed to me having wanted to be a vet before a, a large animal vet as well somebody who kind of wanted to work in fields and you know that really didn't sound like my idea of fun and he said look you know you should give it a chance because actually it's not all corporate law it's not all contracts it's not all boxes of files actually he talked about a friend of his which who was doing he was a person in lawyer and he said this actually has a lot of medicine in it. your degree has a lot of medicine a lot of science in it and actually you should give it a go so he kind of pointed me in the direction of medical and personal injury law and also intellectual property law, which is patents, uh, which is another area of law which has, you know, heavy science influence, basically. And he said, look, if you're a scientist, have a look at these two areas, give it a chance. Uh, so I did. I did some work experience in intellectual property and I wasn't totally convinced about that. Um, but then when I started looking into the personal injury side uh, and the medical side of law, I was really interested in that. I was really interested in the medical side particularly, which is very heavily uh, medical influenced. And actually you spend a lot of your time reading medical records, talking to doctors, um, obtaining medical reports from doctors. Uh, and actually, you know, you are pretty much half a doctor um, without the qualifications. Obviously we take close, we, we take close advice from doctors. We don't, we don't make any of the diagnoses ourselves, but you do learn a lot of the medical t terminology uh, being a, a medical or personal injury lawyer. So I, I was really interested in that side of things and decided that's what I wanted to pursue. 
Um, so I started looking for what you call kind of training contracts, which is how you qualify in, in the UK system. You have to secure uh, to basically a firm to sponsor you for two years worth of training. You have to go through the process of doing your conversion. I only had to do a conversion course to law because I already had an undergraduate degree. If you're going straight in from school, you have to do a three year undergraduate degree. But if you're coming already with um, an undergraduate qualification, you can do a conversion in one year which is what I did. And then you have to secure two year, two year training contract, or which is kind of like an apprenticeship basically with a firm. Then after the end of that period, you'll qualify. Uh, in England, they're incredibly difficult to secure. It's about 300 to one, the stats, about 300 applicants for every one of these kind of two year training contracts. So it's incredibly competitive. And I didn't have the best arts. I didn't have the best A-levels in the world, which are the exams that you take at the end of high school, uh, which is one of the things they really look at when you know, they really look quite heavily at academic when you're trying to secure one of these training contracts and I did not have the best in the world albeit I, I did pretty well in my degree and I thought that sort of erased my my high school exams at that point unfortunately when you're looking at that level of competition they look at sort of all the exams you've taken and I had this kind of academic blip um, when I when I did my A-levels at the end of school so I found the whole process very difficult to get through as you can imagine um, and really had to basically build up the other aspects of my application form. So the other things I look for are work experience, various different competencies, positions of responsibility. There are kind of lots of aspects to applying for these training contracts. And I really had to bulk up the other areas massively to sort of make up for the fact that my academics weren't as strong as other people's. Um, and long story short, eventually I did get through the process by, you know, kind of looking at other areas of my CV and finding sort of creative ways to bulk them up and did eventually secure one with with a, with the top firm in the UK to do that kind of work, personal injury and medical negligence work. And I started my training contracts back in 2013 now, uh, qualified as a lawyer in 2015 into a very niche area of personal injury law uh, called international serious injury, where basically I represented claimants who had had some kind of injury, but abroad. So either they'd had an accident abroad or they had medical treatment abroad. And there was basically this element of conflict of, of law as well. So I was always dealing with multiple jurisdictions. Minimum of two jurisdictions would be involved in a case could be you know anywhere above that as well, uh, which was a really interesting area of law in itself, actually sort of dealing with how the various jurisdictions uh, progress cases differently, the sort of different states of various different legal systems, dealing with experts and lawyers in lots of different countries, um, very complex cases, but always kind of centered around some kind of injury or, or medical accident, which is what I found the most interesting. So I stayed there uh, right up until this time last year, actually, but sort of immediately after I qualified, I wanted to sort of tell the story of how I how I did this um, because a lot of people, I think, with my you know academic record, would have said, "Look, you're knowing the stats. I'm just not going to bother. You know, I'll never get in." Um, and I sort of had this, you know, I think that sort of made me more determined to sort of prove people wrong to say, "No, I am going to do this, even though all the stats are kind of against me." Um, so I started up a, I started mentoring other students pretty much as soon as I secured my training contract, and then once I qualified, um, I set up a YouTube channel basically talking through how I'd you know got through this process and things that I'd done to help boost my application form in other ways and um, yeah so I started a YouTube channel talking about that as, as a, a way of kind of reaching more people on a mentoring platform because I'd sort of run out of hours in the day being a qualified lawyer uh, to take on any more sort of face-to-face -face mentees so I started as a platform to, to mentor really.
Um, it took a little while to take off. There wasn't really, this is back in 2016, I started recording videos. I actually launched the channel in 2017. And back then there was very little going on in the law space on YouTube. You know, there was a lot, you know, YouTube wasn't new. There was lots of beauty bloggers and, you know, things like that. But actually in terms of people using it as a kind of education platform, particularly in law, there really wasn't very much happening at all. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, maybe it's because it just doesn't work. You know, there's just not the market for it, but I'll give it a go and see what happens. So I started my channel and uh, it did take a while. It did take a while to grow. It was kind of a trickle of views, which I'm pretty sure was mainly my parents <laughs> watching for kind of the first six months. And then a legal publication picked it up, actually ran a story about it. And then kind of overnight, it, it really, really took off. And, you know, students started subscribing and their channel kind of morphed, you know, not just about my journey, but I started interviewing other people. I started sort of talking about topical cases in the news to kind of give people some commercial awareness and how you would talk about these in the context of an interview, because there wasn't a lot of kind of satellite support for students going through that process. There was obviously universities who were teaching people the core academics that they needed, and they often had career services that went with that. But I didn't find that they were kind of preparing you holistically for what the process of securing that training contract is like. It's like a seven stage interview process in, in some stages. Um, and I sort of wanted to give some feedback on what the whole process is like and how to su succeed at each, each one of those points and kind of give some more practical advice around that. So that's how the channel grew. It then morphed into other social media platforms, um, events, coaching, it, you know, then, you know, various different social media platforms. As I mentioned, during lockdown, I ran, ran an Instagram live show every Monday where I interviewed a different person in the profession, basically. And now we're just over 85,000 followers across platforms. So, um, I mean, compared to some big time YouTubers, that's pretty small. But actually in, in law, that where there isn't a huge, huge market, um, it's it's not too bad. So that was kind of my, my side hustle that I ran alongside being a qualified lawyer up until last year where I decided to step down from my law firm and actually go freelance because I was kind of getting to that point where the side the side hustle was taking more and more time and I really enjoyed it and I was sort of chairing I was chairing junior lawyers division and I was also on the board of a charity and basically there were just too many things and something had to give somewhere and I decided that actually you know I didn't need to practice 60 hours a week which was more or less what I was doing and actually there was a way of sort of cultivating a lifestyle where I could still be a lawyer but I didn't have to be a lawyer 60 hours a week you know I could actually do everything in a lot more balance and basically be able to you know feel less burnt out and do everything that I was doing in my life for an equal period of time rather than being a lawyer being employed for you know 80% of my time and then trying to fit everything else into the remaining 20 so that's when I decided to sort of shake up the lifestyle a little bit and become a consultant. Um, and that's what I did last year. Um, I suppose unlike some unlike some consultants, I decided I didn't join a consultancy firm. Uh, fortunately, because I'd built the network that I had through running my side hustle, I had a lot of people asking me for work and to consult for them. So actually I managed to basically do that. So I'm completely freelance. I have my own company, but I don't go through an agency to secure any of my consultancy work. Um, I've kind of secured all my own clients pretty much solely through LinkedIn and word of mouth. Um, and I consult in, in a range of different things, actually. I think as part of my side hustle, I started talking about various different aspects of the law. Uh, one of which I was particularly interested in was kind of technology and digital and how we're moving more towards a kind of digital first, um, you know, led profession, really. So that's what I started talking about. So actually I'm primarily consulting for a company now called the Digital Legal Exchange, um, which is headed up by a guy called Mark Cohen, who you might know if you kind of operate in the kind of legal market space, he edits the Forbes column 
uh, the legal Forbes column. Um, and uh, another lady called Isabel Parker, um, who used to be um, innovation manager at Freshfields, which is one of the magic circle firms in the UK. And it's basically um, an organization which brings together global in-house teams and facilitates digital transformation in those teams. So very different side of the law that I'm in now. And then I often, and I consult for other smaller businesses on different elements of business strategy. And I'm also still signed onto the role, so I can still practice as well in the medical field, albeit in the last year, my main line of work has probably been the more business consultancy and strategy for for legal businesses than it has the practice side. So that's a that's a, a short history. It felt, felt like a long history there, but <laughs> that's that's the short history of me. That's amazing. Congratulations on growing to like eighty seven thousand following. It's like it, that's really big within the law niche. Um, how much percent of your time do you think goes towards consulting work versus the coaching? Yeah, interesting question. Um, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, when I was talking about balance and sort of where everything fits in. I mean, I, I would say, uh, I would probably say 40% of my time is consulting. And then the other 60% of the time is a combination of my side hustle, which has become more of a main hustle, I guess, but also a combination of, of public speaking, um, content writing and creating for other businesses, which I suppose is a form of consultancy, but it, it, it's not really advising, I wouldn't say. Um, kind of, you know, chairing the junior lawyers division, running events. So, yeah, I would probably say 40% consultancy, 60% kind of wider, wider community and, and different types of, of kind of, of, of earning, I guess. I see that you're on like LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube. Which platform do you think sort of brings in the most sort of word of mouth and sort of clients you reckon? Yeah, another good question. I think because I have sort of various different remits that I operate in, I think for consultancy, definitely LinkedIn brings in the most consultancy work for businesses. But I would say probably TikTok and Instagram bring in more of the work for public speaking, content creation, uh, work with universities and people who, who want to work with me to kind of work with students. So which which you kind of would expect, really, because those are the two platforms that, you know, businesses naturally gravitate more towards LinkedIn still, although I think we, we might see a shift there. And then kind of student naturally gravitate I think more towards TikTok Instagram so I suppose the two my two markets are kind of in those two separate domains that's awesome and when it comes to LinkedIn like I've been sort of going a bit hard on LinkedIn recently um, I th I've just been listening to Gary Vee and, and he's been pushing LinkedIn and, I, and I'm seeing the results like the organic reach is pretty crazy um, but one thing I've always wondered like how do people sort of get clients from LinkedIn because like I'm creating posts like you always get a bunch of the spammy messages from those people connecting with those automated messages and then people don't you know people filter through all their inbox how do you properly sort of get clients from LinkedIn I think it depends on the area that you're operating in, uh, how you secure clients. I think talking largely about what you do really helps, you know, making insightful commentary on either, you know, if, if you're a lawyer, you can talk about, if you're an employment lawyer, for example, talking a lot about other employment law cases and giving your insight on those, talking about kind of the state of the industry. I think 
talking about, or I think using clients as advocates is really helpful as well. Getting your clients to talk about you on LinkedIn um, or kind of featuring clients within your post, the sort of things that you're doing. And also just being being human. It sounds basic, but I think the, the people who seem to do the best on LinkedIn are always people who are giving kind of personal anecdotes about their experiences and who people actually want to connect with. I think when you're, you know, trying to secure a new business or even, you know, a new role, for example, you know, it's it's 50% your capability and 50% do people want to work with you um, because there's so much, there's so much competition in the marketplace right now. You have to do both. You have to kind of prove your credibility and, you know, fitness to do the job, but you also have to showcase that actually, you know, of the however many hundreds of thousands of other people who are in your space, you're the one that people should want to work with because you know you're actually an enjoyable person to work with as well as being able to do your job. I think almost in current society, you know, it's table stakes to be able to do your job. And consumers are looking for something more than that. They're looking for a connection with the businesses and people that they're working with to provide a certain service. So I think the more you can showcase that on so and social media is the perfect avenue for that, really, because you can really put your personality out there. I think that's a really good way, you know, and actually talking about struggles which you know are relatable to your clients or other people in the industry. That's a really good way of immediately making people connect with you. I think often I've got the most business through people saying, I saw your post on that and I related to that so much. I feel exactly that. Um, I wondered if there's any synergy between what we're doing and what you're doing. And then, you know, you schedule a Zoom and then hopefully there is and you go from there. But quite often, you know, people want to jump on Zooms. They want to connect with people who they feel are on their level and really understand them. So if you can show that you understand those struggles, then often that's a really good way of kind of getting into people's hearts, I think. And having sort of been only sort of doing this like maybe full time for the last year, do you, has there been sort of ups and downs on influx of leads because I sort of know where sort of when I'm creating content I'm just relying on inbound and people sort of booking calls with me reaching out to me there's periods where it's just a slow month and there's periods where I'm just getting a ton of bookings I'm getting a bunch of clients and and there's you feel a bit sort of insecure because like there's these big ups and downs yeah absolutely uh yeah definitely and you can't really predict when that's going to happen sometimes i think sometimes if i do a big event for example then naturally i normally get some leads that follow off that or it, again if i do a linkedin post which gets lots of attention then naturally there'll kind of be an influx after that as well but you can't always predict you know which events or which posts are going to do well so you never really know when that influx is going to come inevitably it's like like buses you get none for a long time and then suddenly you get three at once and it's like oh i just wish it would spread evenly you know nice and evenly across the year but it doesn't happen like that you get hardly anything and then suddenly you get 10 inquiries and you know you have to decide whether you can you know whether you have the capacity to take on all those 10 and that's kind of life as a freelancer i think you know because you have to make those decisions when you're in a law firm you just get allocated work you just get told this is what you have to do and you just have to make it work whereas when you've got a little bit more control of your time you can actually choose whether or not you want to take on all that work or uh, I think sometimes that can be more difficult because you kind of have to choose you know I, I wanted to step down and do consultancy because or sidestep rather it's not it's not really a step down um, because I wanted to keep more of that free time but when you've got people in, in, inquiring for work it's very easy for those boundaries to get a little bit blurred and then suddenly I'm working as many hours as I was when I was in practice but I think when you know when it's all my when, it, when it's your choice it's a bit different i think you know in a law firm you feel like you don't have that choice um whereas now if i if i know if i choose to take on those clients and i am working slightly longer than i would normally that 
I, I've made that executive choice to do that. And, you know, maybe that means I can have a slightly longer holiday in the summer, who knows? Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's difficult to manage those things. I think particularly not being under a consultancy firm, you kind of have sl the, the fear slightly more uh, because obviously you don't have those protections being a freelancer that you do as being an employee. You know, any of your clients can just say, actually, you know what, we don't really need you next week. And then suddenly, you know, you're completely reliant on being present to bring in all of your own work. Uh, and actually, if that doesn't happen, then you go through a dry period you just don't bring in any money. So I think I've kind of combated that by trying to diversify in terms of where my income comes from. So some of it's consultancy, some of it is directly through social media, um, through sort of ad revenue, some of it's through social media collaboration, some of it's through speaking, um, some of it's through events. And so hopefully if one goes through a bit of a dip, hopefully some of the others are on a high. So hopefully that's what I've kind of tried to do as a freelancer. And I think if anybody else was, was thinking about doing that, I would also say try and do the same thing because normally those peaks and troughs hopefully even out um, enough if you've got enough sort of different types of, of, of revenue stream. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult because you just you just can't predict. You know, if something, if there's a particular drive, like usually I'm quite busy around kind of mental health awareness week and sort of, and those times because people want speakers around those sorts of topics. And often I talk about those topics a lot during that time. And I, I know that that's normally gonna be a busy period. So you can kind of predict it slightly if you know um, the areas that people are really interested in instructing you for and when there's good sort of going to be a heightened, uh, you know, or you can capitalise on what's going on in the market. So I think you have to be kind of alive to where the opportunities are, where the changing markets are uh, and say, OK, actually, I know that if I talk about this at this time or, you know, I put out content about this at this time, I'm likely to bring in some leads. So I think you have to be, you know, commercially aware of your market. And in order to, so you can kind of predict those a little bit, a little bit better. Has leads came in through TikTok or do you think TikTok is more of a longer sort of longer term game plan? Yeah, no, they have come in through TikTok. Um, TikTok is kind of, in terms of jurisdiction, TikTok, I have people all over the world coming in on TikTok and most of them are for kind of practice related advice. And I can't help all of them because if it's like a US jurisdiction case, I'm only actually qualified to practice in the UK. So a lot of them I've had to kind of refer elsewhere. But actually, in some cases, I don't do this, but you could. If you were referring kind of a lot of cases, you could always try and set up like a referral arrangement in that way. So just because you have to refer cases away from you, you're not referring them directly to you doesn't mean you're, you've lost all the revenue from that. Um, yeah, I don't because I refer them to people I know and it's fine. But uh, yeah, you could you could do that if you wanted to. And a lot of leads have come in through TikTok, actually. Um, I think that probably has a lot to do with my handle. I was quite early on TikTok and my TikTok, I mean, TikTok is the TikTok lawyer. So actually, um, which sort of, I, I, I sort of came up with that on a whim and I thought, okay, I'm going to talk about law. So I'll, I'll, I'll put my hand as a TikTok lawyer. And I didn't really realize how, how valuable that was going to be actually until later on, because people will often just search the, you know, TikTok lawyer in their search bar and then if they're looking for a lawyer and then I come up. Um, so naturally I get a lot of inquiries from people saying, can you, you know, from all over the world saying, can you help with this? And actually most of the time I have to say no, because it's some weird and wonderful jurisdiction. 
And I get tagged into a lot of things to comment on things because again, people just search TikTok lawyer, anyone's got a legal problem, they'll just tag me into it. And again, most of it comes from the US jurisdiction, which I'm not really qualified to comment on. So I kind of have to say that and refer it on to other people. But actually I think TikTok's a huge market. Um, if you can build, if you can, you know, really build some credibility on there, you know, I, I think there's a huge amount of people because it's not all, I mean, yes, you can say that at the moment, it's still, I think pretty heavily dominated by the sort of junior end in terms of sort of young people, but actually young people need legal advice too, um, you know, and, and also young people grow up and need legal advice for their businesses. So actually, you know, building that network amongst a younger generation, albeit you might not see the kind of fruits of your labor until later, is really worthwhile doing, you know, even if you're not seeing the kind of immediate ROI, you will see it later. And, you know, in some cases you do see the immediate ROI. One of your last recent posts, you were sort of commenting and reacting to like the herd versus Depp case. And I've been seeing that on my TikTok. And like one, do they always film and broadcast all sort of cases? Why is this one broadcasted? Did Depp, Johnny Depp say, hey, like I want the world to see this? And two, are all the memes correct about how like Amber Heard's like lawyers are just really, really bad? Um, and, and all the clips make it, seem that way as well yeah it's an interesting one again this is this is this is proceeding in the us the, the rules are slightly different over there and i can't claim to be an expert on this in the uk um once something goes to open court so once it goes to a trial it's kind of free for all it's public forum so you can actually go along and you can sit in the gallery it's just a similar case going on actually at the moment in the uk which is the wagatha christie trial i don't know if you've been following that um it's two footballers wives who were having a very similar discussion about uh or very similar case about defamation uh, which is the other one that i compared it to in the post uh, that you were talking about yesterday uh so yes basically once things go to a trial um, you know, a courtroom is effectively an, an open forum, so people can come in. And I mean, I suspect in the debt behead trial because it was a huge trial. I suspect there was some sort of entry criteria. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, um, but yeah. So it does effectively become, you know, public at that point. Um, so yeah, so people can, you know, take videos where all these, I don't know what the sources of all this content is, but inevitably you have to take a little bit with a pinch of salt because they will take odd comments out of context. Unless you kind of watch the whole thing, it's very difficult to know what's really gone on in that scenario. I mean, if you've ever watched kind of any kind of reality TV, you know, they kind of slice up the comments to make it look like someone's reacted a certain way or said a certain thing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's inevitably what's happened with some of these memes, which have been taken out of context you sort of see looks between the various lawyers and then john and it, it, there's no way of knowing whether those looks actually kind of followed on from each other or not so i mean i i've been quite entertained by the whole process but whether i've necessarily bought into what's been said is a kind of a different matter i think i suppose a lawyer in me says you know you need to see all the evidence laid out in its you know in its true form rather than just taking snippets out of context but it's certainly been yeah it's certainly been an entertaining few weeks watching the memes that have, have come out of this um, and I'm not surprised given it's such a high profile case. Earlier you're talking about how you sort of do like Instagram posts and events. Um, what are, are these sort of like Zoom events? How, how do these events work? Tell me about these events. Yeah, so a combination of both. I started pre-pandemic which meant they were largely taking place in person. I did do I think I did a couple of webinars, but actually, I mean, it's, it's hard to remember now life, life pre-pandemic, but I'm pretty sure I didn't really jump on the sort of online Zoom bandwagon heavily until the pandemic occurred. So the events that I was running 
were largely in-person events actually um so i ran events through my own company which i'd set up but i also chaired the junior lawyers division um with the branch which was actually in, in birmingham uk which is where i was based so i also ran events uh, physical events through the junior lawyers division as well and then we moved obviously into the pandemic and then i shifted everything online pretty much um as I mentioned, I did these kind of weekly Instagram lives on Monday evenings, which went down pretty well um, because, you know, most people were sat at home doing nothing on a Monday. And actually that was back in the day where, you know, being online and doing these Instagram lives was relatively new and exciting, a way of kind of contacting people and connecting with people when you couldn't do that physically. So that was a really interesting kind of period. And I got to interview loads of different people because people who you wouldn't normally be able to speak to suddenly had free evenings. So they were actually kind of more open to doing things so I was able to kind of capitalize on that and speak to some really really interesting people uh week in week out which was great and I kind of split it into series so we'd have a theme you know for four or five weeks I'd interview people in in a certain area of the law um and then you know I'd switch themes so we've done a number of different series I, I'm running one still currently actually and that's on kind of consultants different kinds of consultants because I since I've moved into this remit people have had lots of questions about consultancy generally and I'm certainly not qualified to comment on all of them so it's better to have somebody come in and talk about their experience I don't want people to just hear from me because it's not representative of the whole market interesting and do you so record all these shows and put them on youtube or are they just live and is it mainly guest based only yeah so it is almost exclusively guest based i mean i use my instagram stories to jump on kind of you know every so often and you know my stories are pretty active most days but in terms of the instagram lives I generally have some, well, almost exclusively have had someone who I've been interviewing and then they introduced a feature relatively quickly on Instagram where you could automatically upload the Instagram live to your Instagram TV. So they didn't do that straight away and I had to screen record them and then upload them separately, uh, which sounds incredibly dated now, but this was only kind of at the beginning of 2020, really, that they still hadn't introduced that feature. Um, so basically a combination of ones that I've screen recorded and uploaded, and then ones that have automatically uploaded. There were some times where I was interviewing people who weren't on Instagram, so I did them on Zoom, but then I would just record those and upload them either onto YouTube or onto, yeah, or onto, or onto Instagram TV. Is, is, is it still possible to like grow on Instagram? Because I know like I've been on TikTok and TikTok, it's crazy how much organic reach you can get. Same as LinkedIn. But Instagram seems to be like, you know, only like 10% of your followers will see it. And then it's maybe if you're doing a lot of reels, that helps. But is it possible to still grow on Instagram? Instagram is one of the toughest and one of the most kind of frustrating platforms, actually, out of all of them. It's probably my least favorite platform um, in terms of kind of actually seeing the fruits of your labor, which I think for creators is important. It's important that if you make a good piece of content and you put time into it and you know it's a good piece of content, um, it's important for that content kind of gets the reach it deserves. And I think with Instagram, it's very frustrating at the moment because you're looking at the reach it's getting and it's only showing it to you know, you know, 1500 accounts or something like that, when, you know, my following is significantly bigger than that. It's, it's frustrating. It's one thing if it shows it to everyone and people don't like it, fine. That's the whole point of content creation. It's supposed to be kind of audience focused. So if people see it and don't like it, I have no issue with that. But when people aren't seeing it, it's frustrating when you put kind of time and effort into it. And I think the algorithm keeps changing. It's very difficult to keep track of. 
And you're right, every time Instagram introduces a new feature, it prioritizes content, which is using that feature. So at the moment, it's really prioritizing reels. Um, so if you're posting reels every day, then there's a good chance that you'll grow. But that's not the kind of content that everybody wants to produce. And it's time consuming. And, you know, it's not not everybody, even me now with my with more free time, do I have time to produce a reel every single day? Um, especially when I'm producing reels for, well, producing TikTok content, and it's not always kind of directly transferable. Um, there are slight differences between the content that does well as a reel and the content that does well as a TikTok video. Uh, so it's not as easy as just copy paste onto Instagram. Um, so it's a difficult one. I would say like my, for a while, what I did largely in terms of increasing my Instagram following was actually to uh, direct to Instagram from other platforms where I was getting a bigger reach. So I'd advertise my, my Instagram live shows on LinkedIn, on TikTok, on Twitter, and actually direct people that way. And actually that's how I was getting the majority of my followers was directing people from other platforms where I was getting bigger exposure. And actually I found that a lot more, a lot more fruitful actually than trying to generate organic followers by posting on Instagram because that's, it's so difficult at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I don't post a lot of reels on there. Maybe if I did, I would see kind of a better reach at the moment, but at the moment I prefer to direct people there from other platforms and just not have to deal with the stress of kind of looking at the figures on Instagram. And I will still put things on Instagram, but I'm less bothered about, you know, just have to kind of, you know, put it to one side, how much reach it's going to get, not invest too heavily in numbers of followers, a number of views that the post is getting, uh, and just focus on on other platforms, which I, I think are much better at achieving the organic reach. So you've been like pretty like ahead of the curve, Chrissy. Um, what do you recommend people to like jump on now? What are you currently doubling down on as of this moment? Um, so a few different things really i mean i think if you're in the if you're in the law space then i think you definitely need to be looking you know you definitely need to be looking at the kind of digital space really and and how we're moving into that i suppose i'm um, i've been doing that for a couple of years now and now i'm moving slightly uh into the next space which is going to be how the metaverse will impact the legal profession and what the kind of potential applications of that are. So that's sort of where I'm at at the moment is kind of exploring those possibilities. Um, but I think if you are, but I think we're probably a little way off that being, you know, normal day to day in the legal profession. I think we're a little way off that, but I think, I think it, it could, it, it could, we could get there. Uh, so I'm exploring, you know, I want to be ahead of the curve on that one as well when that happens. Um, but I think at the moment, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think if you're trying to build a name for yourself in law, then absolutely the first place you have to start with that is social media, particularly particularly LinkedIn. I think if you're a professional and you're looking to secure business clients, then I think build yourself a profile on LinkedIn and just start using it every day as regularly as you can. Even if you're just commenting on other people's stuff, even if you don't physically post every day, but using the platform, you can still get followers. You can still get connections off the back of a comment that you make on someone else's post. Um, even if you, you know, don't have the creativity to come up with your own thing every single day. Um, I think join as many events as you can. I think if we're talking about in the context of um, having a successful career, I think you need to future-proof yourself as much as you possibly can. And I think a huge part of that is making sure you have a really strong network of people because that's how I managed to kind of step away from working in private practice and working for a big firm is because I, I built this network and I actually had work available for me. I think a lot of the reasons why people often get stuck in that employment circle is because they don't really know 
where to go or kind of how to bring in their own work separately from their firm because you're so used to being delegated this work by a business. So I think if you can get to that point where you're self-sufficient, actually, you know, you can bring in your own work from, you know, X number of different sources. I think that's really important. And a great way of doing that at the moment is to build yourself a profile on social media and kind of go to as many events as you possibly can. Um, I think if you're, yeah, if you're really interested in kind of the, the future of the legal profession, I would definitely be exploring the kind of AI and digital space. And if you're interested in the kind of metaverse space, absolutely have a look at what's going on there at the moment. It's kind of just very much on the cusp for legal uh, right now. So if you're if you're really interested in 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 getting ahead, then definitely keep an eye on, on what's going on in that space. Um, but. Um, yeah, I, I think really at the moment we're fully, you know, we're fully embracing the digital age of legal. I'm not sure we're fully embracing the kind of augmented reality phase, but we're fully in the digital phase. And I think there are, I think now in terms of providing a good sort, you know, a good service for your clients, you have to provide that in a digital way. Um, so that's really kind of where I'm focusing most of my energy at the moment, particularly consulting for the digital legal exchange is working out how we can create, you know, a digital, a data focused um you know legal legal team basically to provide the best service for our clients now when you sort of talk about like are you sort of helping sort of law firms get online and build an online presence or when you talk about data you're talking about something else yeah, well, I think the digital digital kind of has different connotations for everyone. I mean, I see digital and it's not just about technology. It's about an entire mindset. Uh, you know, I think being digital is about putting your clients first. It's about being agile. It's about being flexible. It's about, yes, embracing the technology and digital tools that we have available. But fundamentally, it's about putting your client first and what they need and creating a bespoke service that best caters to them. And actually, that involves the whole structure of your workforce, the structure of your workflow, how teams interact, bringing in different types of uh, discipline as well. So, I mean, lawyers generally like to handle everything themselves, but I think collaboration is a big part of being digital. It's actually bringing in other teams, other expertise and saying, actually, you know, creating kind of a, a bespoke platform another thing which lawyers are really good at is kind of following precedents for everything and I don't think it's it's about that I think it's about saying you know this is the client we have this is the problem that they have you know it's almost going back to first principles every time and saying right what can we create to solve this rather than saying oh we've had a client with this before here's a template that we followed you know no two clients are the same no two problems are the same and also the world is changing and shifting all the time there's always new technologies available there's always new ways of doing things and i think it's always about having that flexible attitude every time you have you know a client or a business problem is making sure that you're not kind of closing yourself up to the way that you've done things previously in that situation um, which is a kind of common lawyer mindset to say kind of where's my precedent for this you know we must follow the same thing that we've done every time before which i think in kind of modern context of law just isn't going to work with with modern clients in the way things are shifting because there are lots of businesses who are flexible like that and clients are definitely going to favor those types of businesses over the ones who are kind of steeped in tradition and have a very set way of doing things so i think the more you can understand your client the more you can have an open mind towards how you provide them with the solution they need the more likely you are to provide a better service and keep those clients moving forward what has been sort of the main pain point these sort of law firms are going through that they're like man like i need to talk to chrissy like for some reason our clients are not saying yes and they're uncomfortable working with us is that the pain these law firms are feeling 
Uh, I think the pain people often come to me with is actually more the pain of their employees um, not engaging with them. So we've had the great resignation. I did a lot of talks around the great resignation, particularly around the millennial and Gen Z uh, cohort of people who were, who were the biggest in the study that I did. Those were by far the, the biggest kind of cohort of people who were resigning was the more junior end of the market who I'm fairly in touch with through my kind of side hustle and so I got a lot of inquiries after doing some talks a lot of content around this you know why why are employers leaving you know a lot of people come to me and say you're, you're a lawyer and you actually seem happy and you seem to enjoy your job like how can, how can we do this how can we create a work environment that people actually enjoy so I do a lot around culture and employee engagement and uh, so that's a lot of the pain points that I feel also uh, around marketing as well because people have seen that I've built a kind of personal brand through my social media people also want to create that for themselves and for their business so people come to me and say how do you kind of create what you've created uh, can you do it for us and also you know how how can we make our employees engaged with what they do um, as you are with what you do so sometimes it's just kind of putting yourself out there and people see something that they like and go we want that you know so we want you because we want what you know you what you display and what you stand for and sometimes people come to me and they don't i, I had a client the other day he didn't really know what he wanted he said i'm watching your content and you know i really like your energy and i really want you to be a part of what i'm building it was a startup and he was kind of like what could we do he didn't even really know what he wanted from me he just wanted me to be a part of his startup um you know and i said okay cool you know what are you doing and we had a conversation and i kind of came up with a few things where i thought i could add value based on what he was trying to achieve so sometimes you know this is kind of the beauty of social media sometimes i've commented on something you know and someone said oh can you consult on that and i thought well i've never thought about consulting on that it was just an interesting news story um so sometimes things can evolve um, out of something that you didn't even kind of mean for it to evolve out of so i think the more you put yourself out there particularly as a consultant like when you've got a lot more freedom over what you do actually it helps to kind of diversify and talk about different things because you never know what's going to lead to something else you can't do that so much as an employee you're kind of stuck in your remit of what your business will allow you to do but as a consultant kind of you know the sky's the limit really so you can really kind of branch off and talk about things that you're really passionate about and you know get involved with clients and projects that you really love when you were so talking about like the metaverse and like that whole ai space does that have anything to do with like deep fakes and how like people can now like put like a deep fake of Barack Obama saying something that he did not say. It's an interest. It's an interesting area. Um, and I, I've been talking about this with a couple of people recently about um, kind of the differences between kind of practicing real life law in the metaverse and actually the laws of the metaverse, which are going to be, you know, when something happens in the metaverse, what are, you know, what are the laws surrounding that? I mean, obviously it's decentralized. So you're dealing with a whole different type of space and how to how, what happens if, you know, crime is committed in that space? How do you police that? And, you know, it's, so it's really interesting. And to be honest, um, I am by no means an expert in this yet. I'm really interested in it. I'm interested to see how it will unfold. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of differences between yeah, between kind of what I just said, the kind of the real life, the applications of real life law in the metaverse and the metaverse and its own and its own laws. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. But I, I'm probably I'm not going to comment any more on that until I know a little bit more, I think. <laughs> and last question, like, how do you what do you think is the best way for people that want to be consultant or actually people who want to get speaking gigs? Like what has you have you found helped you the most when it comes to getting gigs? 
Yeah, I think talking about topical issues, I think people often have events around topical issues. So I think if you can weigh in with an opinion on something that's topical or weigh in with an opinion on something that is, you know, you're really passionate about and that you want to speak on, um, definitely use social media to your advantage. Because I think people, you know, like people who they know are not going to shy away from, you know, giving a strong opinion or giving really important information. So I think the more you can kind of showcase how you would speak and what you would speak on, on social media the better i think starting off small i mean i started off by just literally you know asking my local universities whether they needed anybody you know whether i you know for free whether i i could come in and speak to their students about careers or a particular aspect of it and then eventually you know word of mouth oh chrissy comes and speaks on this and then you get to bigger universities and then suddenly people start filming those talks and you, then you've got kind of something that you can put online to show yourself speaking so i think baby steps you know start off small ask if you can do some things for free um you know to give some of your expertise and then kind of build that platform slowly or you know you can do use an alternative route you can start doing what i did which is youtube as well and actually i think the more kind of examples you've got of how you speak the better and i think if you can show yourself as an engaging speaker so if you've done a particularly good youtube video you know put that on there because people again they'll if they can see you talking and they identify with that then they're more likely to say actually could you come and speak on that i had a client the other day who wanted to well, asked me to come in and do training and he'd been through my whole youtube channel <laughs> uh, and actually said right i've picked out these five videos which i really liked i'd like you to come and speak on these five topics to my firm or business which is not something i ever imagined when i created those videos you know three you know three four years ago now um but actually put as much put as much online as you possibly can i mean online is is an absolute gold mine and you never know when something's going to get stumbled upon or discovered and there's so many different ways of doing that you don't have to use youtube you can use instagram stories or reels or you know tiktok or you don't have to do video if you don't want to i mean there are other ways i think if you're a speaker it helps to have as much video content as you can uh, but you can also do it through LinkedIn, through talking about the the topics that you want to speak on. But definitely start small. I think there's always a tendency with everyone to kind of want to hit the big time immediately. And actually, you do kind of have to put in the groundwork. And often that's what leads to the bigger opportunities rather than just trying to kind of break in at the top end. With so many different things from like speaking gigs to like consulting on a wide range of different topics, how do you come up with sort of consulting packages? Do you sort of just come up with it on your mind? Is it time-based? Do you take a day off and be like, hey, let me get back to you? What's the best way? Yeah, it's still a work in progress, in all honesty. I'm still pretty new to this, uh, having been doing it for kind of just under a year, actually. So I'm still getting people come to me with things that I have no idea how to price up or how to cost. So it is a little bit, you know, it's I don't have, you know, a set packages and say you have to fit into this bracket. You know, as I said, I had someone come the other day who didn't really know what he wanted. And I had to sort of come up with things based on really where I thought I could add value rather than just a package that I had. It's not a one size fits all approach and I don't try and palm people off with this is what I do and you have to accept this package I don't think that's the way to kind of work successfully with clients I think you have to really figure out what they want what's best for them and you know work that around I, I'm pretty flexible I can do short-term projects long-term projects I'm happy to work with people um, you know in different ways I can decide you know whether it's best that I work on an hourly rate or you know if I think it's going to be a set period of time or you know, whether it's it's more package based, I say, right, okay, I'll, I'll do it for a fixed price of this. If, it, if it's a product, if it's something that, if it's something like some people have wanted help with their website, for example, 
And I can say I can do X, Y and Z for this prize. But if it's people who want, you know, entire people who want help with a, a whole rebrand, for example, I'll say, well, that isn't just the website. It's also actually it's also the culture it's also tweaking your values it's also how you present yourself online how you're presenting yourself to the rest of your staff you know that's not just we can't just change a logo and you've rebranded you know if you really want to create a culture it's about kind of how you live and breathe and actually that's a much more kind of holistic in-depth service from from me than it is to just say okay we'll just tweak your website and then I'm gone like I'm quite invested in making sure the results of what I do are long-lasting and you can't necessarily take things at face value. When people say they want a rebrand, they think that that means changing their logo. And I say, well, you know, you know, what's going on here? Are your employees engaged? How are your clients being? And actually you realize that in, in those, you know, rebrand can actually fix a lot of those or at least help a lot of those issues as well if you do it properly. So sometimes it's not always a case of clients coming to me with one thing and me providing that one thing. It's delving a little bit deeper into that and exploring what, what they need that I can really help with. Got it. And do you find that it's better to provide a few different sort of packages or options or is it better to like create something like, hey, this is sort of what I think I can help you with the most and this is sort of what I'm thinking and just give them one thing? Because I know like when I sort of did a lot of consulting in the past, I'd always be unsure if I underpriced myself, overpriced myself and then lost that client. They wouldn't come back because I priced it too high because the previous clients I priced too low. Um, What's your thoughts? Yeah, this is this is the, you know, uh, a never ending discussion that I have with myself all the time. I think sometimes I come up with a price and I never hear from people again. And sometimes I come up with a price and they go, oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, and I yes. think, uh, you know, it's like I've either priced <laughs> people out or I mean, I try I try to stick with this is the value of my time, you know, and I try not to move too much away from that because I feel like then it's you know you, you've got to know what the what the value of your time is and actually if you're kind of putting a lower value on it for some things and a higher then do you really know what the value of your time is you know I think for me it's this and actually if people have a lower budget I'll say okay well let's try and arrange it so that I can spend less time rather than saying okay I'll just cut the cost of my time I'll say okay well I can do it in a slightly different way um, which means that it's you know it takes less time but I won't discount the value of that time um, I try not to do that. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, it depends what I'm doing. Because if, let's say, for example, if I'm in, if I'm practicing, if I'm giving actual legal advice, then that does come at a higher price than if I'm giving business advice. Just because the way the you know the way you price actual legal advice is higher than the way you price business advice generally. Um, but in terms of the business advice, again, I try not to kind of waver too much and say, oh well, if I'm doing this, then it's this price, or if I'm doing this, I try and say this is the value of my time because otherwise it becomes difficult then you find yourself not taking on certain jobs and you have to balance out what jobs you're doing to make up for the smaller jobs and you know it doesn't really work for me I just say look this is this is how much my time is and actually that's okay if you can't afford that because I will be able to find another project that that can and again I try and work with clients to to make sure that I can I can do it in a different way if people have really say look I really want to work with you but I haven't got the budget for that I'll say okay let's let's look at this a different way let's do let's try and price it as a package or let's try and say I will do this but then bring in someone else to do this so I'll always try and work with a client budget but I try not to discount the value of my time too much. That makes sense. I don't know if this is the same in UK, but in Australia, we always see these massive billboards that say it's it's a law, it's like a lawyer-based billboard. It's like no win, no fee, no win, no pay. And, it, and I think it has to do with um, injury sort of related sort of cases. How does that work? Like how, how do they make it free if you don't win? 
Yeah. So basically, this this the same principle applies in the US and um, in the UK. Actually, there's slightly different ways of pricing those things because the laws are slightly different on both. But basically, the principle is the same that if you take on an injury case, that actually you like the lawyer only gets paid on the basis that they win the case. So they basically, if you win the case, if you if you lose the case, then the the basically the client pays nothing. And an insurance policy, we take out an insurance policy as a lawyer, which will cover the out-of-pocket expenses. So say, for example, you've had to pay for a medical expert or you've had to pay for a court hearing or something like that. If you ultimately lose the case and there will be an insurance policy, which covers that. But in the UK, that insurance policy doesn't cover our fees. So we just don't get paid if we lose the case, basically. But if we, if we win the case, then what happens is, in in litigation, the the kind of the policy is that the losing party pays the winning party's costs. So, if we win the case, the opponent will pay our fees, but we're also entitled to what we call a success fee. So, we're entitled to take a proportion of the client's damages to basically account for the risk that we've taken because we've taken a big risk in in potentially not getting paid. So, what that means is the client if they win, has to pay a small percentage of their compensation to the lawyer. And that's basically the fee for, for winning. Um, but uh, but I still absolutely no risk if, if they don't. Um, and basically what that means is for us as lawyers is we have to be quite strict about the cases that we take on because obviously we want to get paid. Um, so basically in England, it's that we would look at a case and say if it's got over 50%, we would only take a case on if we think it's got over 50% prospects of success. Um, so if you if you had a case which didn't, you know, didn't meet that criteria, you would basically either have to decide you weren't going to pursue the case or you'd have to pay for that case privately. You would have to kind of pay your lawyer privately because a lot of lawyers won't take on cases unless there's more than a 50 percent chance they're going to get paid. Interesting. How come like in that situation, when you sort of work with a client, you're pretty confident that if you win, the client will sort of pay you their, your fee and they won't run away. But in the consulting world, like I wouldn't have the guts to do that. I wouldn't have the guts to be like, hey, I'll work with you. If you don't get results, um, you don't have to pay. But if you do get results, you have to pay me, say, $10,000. Like I'd be anxious to see if that person would actually go through on that promise. Is there a way to set it up where it's just as secure as the legal, like a no win, no pay in the court system? Yeah, so what so what we would do in that situation is when the compensation gets paid because you don't get the the client won't get the compensation until right at the end of the case. So what happens is um, as part of the agreement, we would agree that the compensation actually gets paid to our firm first. We take our fee out of that compensation and then the remainder gets paid to the client um, because you're absolutely right. If you pay the client the compensation, you then run the risk of, you know, you know, they go and buy a Ferrari the next day or something and then tough, you know, you're stuck chasing your fees. So generally the part of the agreement would be the compensation gets paid to us, we subtract our fee, we then pay it to you. Um, because you're only getting paid out of compensation money. You're not, you're, the client will never pay for anything out of their own pocket unless they choose to do that because we've said the chances of success are not good enough for us to do that on a no-win, no-fee basis. But generally, as part of a no-win, no-fee, the client won't ever pay anything out of their own pocket. They would only pay out of their compensation. So we would take our fee first and then pay the remainder to them. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. I really appreciate it. Where can people sort of find more about what you're doing, learn more about everything you shared on today? Yes, so uh, pretty active across social media. Probably the best place to find me um, is on uh, LinkedIn. I'm Chrissy Wolf on LinkedIn. Uh, yep, I'm on 
Instagram uh, at Chrissy Wolf um, and Twitter at Chrissy Wolf or TikTok at the TikTok lawyer. Um, yeah, and I also have a link tree as well. So link tree forward slash Chrissy Wolf if you want to see all the various different aspects of my kind of consultancy and, and what I do. So yeah, uh, obviously this podcast is, you know, uh, there'll definitely be some some great uh, other great guests on here, I'm sure. So uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time out to talk to me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Like, I think what you're doing is definitely really inspiring to a lot of people that are sort of going through the workforce, unsure. Like, I have so many friends that did law because, I don't know, it was like a prestigious degree and, and they're probably not sure what to do. And I think your content probably helps tons of people just like that. And it's amazing for you to like, you know, seeing you share your journey, share the ups and downs and sort of be vulnerable and sort of share things that can be relatable and sort of be a real human on um, social media so i really love that about you no thank you if you're a student as well my youtube channels uh probably got you know the most information on it if you're kind of a student going through the law process so that's laura broader my youtube channel beautiful we'll link everything in the description below but yeah thank you so much for listening to this episode guys if you guys made it to end thank you so much for giving me your time today and this is another episode of the podcast and we'll see you guys next week peace Thank you.